0: I've seen and managed multiple people where it felt like the work was going into a black box. And even if they enjoy, say, the writing and executing of the code on a day-to-day basis, the learning of new packages, you know, the little things, right, that make the job worthwhile, they ultimately become unmotivated to do anything extra. It's amazing how it how it crumbles. Like there, I read a about a study where they had people build something with Lego blocks. After they finished building, the researcher came and just like sort of destroyed it and then just put it there. And they wanted to see if people would rebuild or build something new. And uh, it actually very quickly destroyed the intrinsic motivation to build these things. Interesting. Yeah, I hope I'm remembering that right. But uh, it was, yeah, it, it was it, it I was like, wow, well, yep, I've seen this in work. I've seen yeah. this in work. Someone fact us, please. Um. <laughs> yeah.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors, the podcast where I bring in fascinating people from my world, talk about life, data science, sports analytics, content creation, and much, much more. I'm your host, Ken G. If you haven't already, we'd greatly appreciate it if you gave us a rating and followed the show. It helps us to continue to bring in incredible guests. Jad, welcome back to the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast. Yeah, it's great to be back. Excellent. Well, I'm, Welcome to my home. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. So for, for those that don't know, we're recording this in Rashad's beautiful home uh, here in New York. And mm-hmm. so I'm uh, grateful you, you let me come, come hang out and I'm really happy we could do this because... Your last episode with me was one of the most popular. You were talking about oh. sort of how you progress through your career so quickly. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to pick up where we left off, mm-hmm. talk about some other exciting things, other things we have in common. Obviously, we've talked a lot about cooking and,
0: oh, yeah. and anthropology and history. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm really interested to dive into those as well. Mm. So, it's the ranging topics outside of uh, data science when you can relate them back that I think bring uh, the most interest for me now. Yeah. You know, rather than just directly studying data science, broadly speaking. So excited to get into it.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, one of the really, really cool things I think we both see is that there are so many things in our outside lives where we see parallels with our careers and it sort of all comes full circle in the end, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to get into some of those topics with you. So Mm -hmm. maybe since we talked last, I'd love for you to catch me up with what's going on with you, what's going on with your career. Is
0: anything interesting changed or or happened? since? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yep. So Last time on, on your podcast, I was talking about how uh, I turned things around at work, and uh, now I have left that job, actually. I left oh. in uh, mid-March, early April, and, um, well, there were a lot of things that went into that decision. Uh, some of it came down to, I guess, a lack of strategic priority for data science. Uh, it just wasn't necessarily particularly central to what the organization did, and, um I've realized that as data science is expensive, it is high risk because it's research. You don't know if you're going to, you know, any specific exploration, you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, it just, uh, it felt like uh, climbing and fighting an uphill battle. And uh, so, you know, I would have rather been in a place where data science felt like it was really central to the purpose. Like there was c suite C-suite buy-in to what we were doing broad consensus about the ways that data science could add value. Yeah. It sort of felt in many ways like I was doing it alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that that's something
1: a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, businesses are very excited. Oh, we need to hire these data teams. We need to do all this stuff. But once you get in a lot of these meetings, mm-hmm. it's all like, hey, what's the return on investment? Mm-hmm. You know, we're spending all this money on data science. What are we getting out of it? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that isn't necessarily how data science works is the expected return on projects, it can have a like massive deviation. Mm-hmm. And you can try to scope it, you can try to do these things, but you can't really start to evaluate things until you have some semblance of where the analysis is going, what it's looking like after mm-hmm. running some models, after doing some, some actual work. Mm-hmm. And so it gets really hard from what I've seen and, and from what I've experienced to to essentially lobby for money for your data science projects, a lobby mm-hmm. for team members or lobby to, to really grow that program, especially when you have to do the work before you can show what you're going to return on it. Mm-hmm. And that that to me is one of the single largest problems in the data domain. Mm. Um,
0: how do you feel about that? Is that something you see as well? I agree. Yes, it's the ultimate catch-22. Yeah, you, uh, yeah, you don't know what the result will be, um, and then when you're hired, when the hire is is made in a very general, oh, this is like the next stage and we need to do this uh, without necessarily understanding what the use cases are. Part of the reason I was hired was to bring an understanding of those use cases. Uh, in that case, what made it difficult was getting access to the people we'd be serving, the the customers, so to speak. Just because of the, the way the organization was set up, it ended up being extremely challenging to get in front of them. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, it was a it, we were a shared service organization uh, for Blackstone, so we were serving their global real estate portfolio, and so uh, what that means is anything that can be centralized logically would be centralized with Revantage. So if you're buying like a, a new real estate assets, new uh, you know half a billion dollars worth of commercial real estate from in a portfolio uh, for an investment. Then instead of, you know, uh, them doing all of their own functions like HR, accounting, finance, whatever, and fulfilling whatever Blackstone needs for reporting and such, uh, that would, a lot of that would go to Revantage. And so, uh, these, a lot of these companies grew, they had different cultures when they come in, when you buy them. Anyone in PE or, you know, will will understand this. You buy these organizations, they have different different cultures, they rose in different ways. And uh, some of them didn't really want to work with us. You know, so it's, it's like, uh, if you were forced to buy something that you didn't want to buy, and then there are the parts that are required that you're forced to do. And then there is me being like, Hey, want to spend more money with us? We're doing cool data science. You know, it's real estate. It's not the most tech forward industry in the world. So a lot of times they're like, well, we're good. You know, we already, we already do business. Oftentimes they wouldn't even, I wouldn't even get to that stage uh i'd be sort of blocked from reaching them directly so without direct access to customers it was like how how am i supposed to incept you know come up with what their biggest problems are and and, and uh and do those things and then iterate and get to uh you know real projects that produce real value yeah, yeah. you know it's
1: it's funny well it's, it's also sad it's more mm-hmm. sad than funny most of the data scientists who i talk to who have left jobs or or started looking for new jobs there's two main things that, that I've heard over and over again. It's one, I don't feel like I'm making an impact. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like the company's invested in the success of these programs mm-hmm. or the teams, or it's that, you know, I'm not growing, I'm not learning. And those mm-hmm. are two really important things. It's almost cool. never, we have too much work. Yeah, it's know? never that. And, and nah. that's, that's the funny thing is, you know, I I really believe that companies that embrace data, they see the returns and they're going to be so far um, so far down the road compared to others that are in the same industry in the mm-hmm. same space. Um, but they have to be willing to accept risk. When you look mm-hmm. at OpenAI and their success now, they were building a, a, a product without any idea what the use cases were. I mean, mm-hmm. there's some semblance of the idea, but hey, we're going to advance this technology as far as we can. Mm-hmm. And we know that there will be opportunities to monetize it. Mm-hmm. That's an unbelievably... Inefficient business model, and mm-hmm. of course they have a lot of funding. They have a lot of these things, mm-hmm. and but there's a lot of there's power in doing that. Cr- power in creating that autonomy and that sort of creative side within an organization, because I view data science projects a little bit like venture capital, right? You have mm-hmm. a portfolio of projects, mm-hmm. and one of those projects, two of those projects, is going to kill it, and they're going to make up for all the projects that fail, mm-hmm. because there are inevitably going to be projects that. You spin up, you're like, hey, we thought this would have a lot of impact, and it just didn't.
2: Mm-hmm. Like
1: the, the results, the information isn't there. You know, As you have better teams, you have better data infrastructure, all these things, you can figure out and iterate on those things really quickly. Mm-hmm. But especially when starting up, you have to give these teams sort of a looser rope, because mm-hmm. they're not going to be able to create traction, they're not going to be able to get any of these wins mm-hmm. if you're just being scrutinized all the time. Mm-hmm. And from a like a business practitioner perspective, you know, I own and operate a couple of businesses. Mm -hmm. It's like a really difficult thing to do. You're like, Oh, we have these dollars. and I could allocate them to something that I know will return. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: But it is, you know, we talk about risk appetite. That's something that is also a factor. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of techniques you can use, which I guess I've learned or come up with in the trenches to define the risk appetite. So some suggestions I've seen, so I, I kind of break the data science lifecycle into sizing of opportunities, the research phase where you're like, oh, will this work or not? You try to prove the concept, and then there's the sort of post research, like the deployment and the monitoring and and all that, the retraining and and that stuff. Um, the research part, the sizing tends to get skipped over the most, and that makes that sets up the research side to fail. Mm. Uh, so one thing you can do is is So, one technique that I used, I called it sort of insight driven development. So, this is if you're doing, if you're in the research phase of a data science project and you, every two weeks you meet with a stakeholder or something like that. You, at the end of two weeks, you want to be able to say what you learned and you want to deliver an insight that you think might be useful to them, at the very least interesting to them, and that will stoke discussion about what to do next. So, then they feel like they've contributed something to what you're doing rather than the black box. Research suffers from the black box problem where the mm-hmm. data scientist retreats into the little cave to do their thing, you know, and stakeholders are like, where, what's happening? And then the sprint ends and, you know, you don't uh, have any, you just have research results. You're like, oh, well, AUC was this and that. or And then they're like, oh, okay, but so, when are we going to get our app, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah so... Uh, that's one technique I use. it doesn't work in isolation. I learned the limit I applied this a lot and I, I learned the limitations of it. Um, one, it makes the, the, it makes getting to the prediction stuff a little slower sometimes. Uh, but it does lead to a richer discussion, but it can be a little more ambu- ambulatory, you know, kind of wandering, right? Um, I would say a better approach would be to, to do that while you're in the research phase, but to actually start with a very defined sizing phase where you consider many opportunities. I think you should consider 20 plus. And if that sounds hard, that's kind of the point. Because you want to, it's like brainstorming for writing, you know. You want to come up with a lot of ideas, be able to see connections between them. These five suck, but maybe 17 and four, hey, wait, what if we come, you know. If you do that, the more you brainstorm, the better the ideas will be. And then you remove them later. And then you go through deeper sizing, meaning uh, what is the potential ROI if this works? How much time is saved? How much cost is saved? How much new revenue might we generate? Uh, how do, do custo- will customers really care about this new capability? It's the GPT angle, you know, which took that really to the extreme. Uh, and then you go over that with the stakeholders, and uh, and then you say, okay, if we did this for X amount of time, and if in you know six months, three months, and all we had at the end was well. Our results aren't quite good enough, but we know this stuff. Would that be okay? Um, I found time boxing research to be very arbitrary. Um, if you don't size the ROI of success and you don't size the benefit of failure, you know, the learnings from failure, the insights that come out of it. That's, I think, the key part. So you try to set yourself up to, not, to, to minimize the risk of failure of research. And I think that's like, that's an effective general principle and approach to use, uh, especially in enterprises when you're trying to transform a business, um, as opposed to something where it's an AI first business and the use case is very clear, like self-driving cars, for example. Yeah. People, I feel like a lot of the material targeted at enterprise data science is, is kind of, I don't know, it sounds like buzzwords to anyone who does data science, you know, Uh, and I, but I feel like if we were able if we make it concrete, you could just unlock so much value in, in, in businesses. It'd be crazy. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, it sounds, it it sounds like you're describing, I don't know whether it's necessarily push or pull, but you know, in your role, you're defining the data science objectives Mm -hmm. and a lot of organizations, it's the teams that are saying, Hey, we have this problem and throwing it to the data teams. Mm -hmm. Is that something you think that shows up organizationally? Is that a, design choice that companies have made. It's that we're going to leverage the data teams to solve our, you know, we're going to ask about these specific problems, or the data teams, it's their job to elicit those problems and figure out where they can Mm. create value. Or is there
0: a little bit of that in all organizations? There's some of this push and pull, right? Mm. There's always always some of both. Uh, With me personally, from my very first job as a data research analyst, uh, I've had to come up with my own work and that's because uh, no one knew what to do with me. Uh, so, it gave me good, when I look back, it gave me really good experience figuring out how to be valuable, which is a useful skill anywhere. Uh, and then if if you do that successfully, people look at what you're doing like, wow, they take so much ownership. You know, it works at any level of job you're in, whether you're entry level or not. Um, so, yeah, in, in, in my first job and in the one I just left, uh, there was a lot of, me figuring out. Uh, often what, what can happen is a cycle um, where you figure out something, you sort of throw it out into the world with as much knowledge and contact with potential customers and clients as you can manage in the time frame. Someone, some people see it, some of them pick it up. They're like, oh, okay. All right, cool. Actually, but actually, I want this. And so, then you get the pull. So, you use push, you push to generate pull. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, you know, you give away a free product to generate the pull of they'll buy more, you know, like in a supermarket or something. Uh, I mean, I feel like consultants, consulting firms know this. So, they generate business through relationships, obviously, but through, you know, the reports they write and, oh, okay, these guys must be pretty smart. Let's hire them, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so, I, I am used to pushing first. In my second job, the, my boss actually really understood data science at Greystone. Uh, he, he liked to to work with it and dabble in it, too. Uh, and it, he, it was a, like a startup-like team. We were building an app, and so it was much easier to come up with real ways to, to add value with data science quickly. So I do kind of miss that feeling sometimes. Like, wow, I did something, and a week later, it had an impact, and we acted on the insight that I came up with with this or, or, this, you know, or this other thing, or we modeled the data. It was very like the, the action feedback loop was really fast yeah uh and i feel like data scientist enterprises they don't get that as much and that's a challenge and one of the challenges of leaders like me is to actually create be able to structure projects in a way to create that loop the success loop that makes people motivated to keep going
1: yeah mm-hmm. personally that's something that i cannot work without yeah. if i don't see the output of my work mm-hmm it's really difficult for me to motivate to do anything. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, that's probably why I work in the roles I work now. That's yeah, why yeah. I make YouTube videos is because I see the return on my work immediately when mm-hmm. I make a video. I publish it. I see people watch it. I mm-hmm. get people commenting on it. I say, okay, I get feedback, some of it negative, some of it positive, and it's like, okay, I can iterate. I can use this. I can push this into the next thing that I do. Mm-hmm. It. It. The hardest thing for me is when I feel like, whatever I did, it just went into a black box. Mm. Or the people that I made it for didn't care about it as much as I cared about it. Mm-hmm. And that that is a real strong... And I think that that's essentially the job that you described of a lot of data science leaders is, how do we make this work? How do we value the work in the same
0: way the data scientists value the work? Mm. It's a sinking feeling to create something and throw it into a black box. I've seen and managed multiple people where it felt like the work was going into a black box. And even if they enjoy the execution, say the writing and executing of the code on a day-to-day basis, the learning of new packages, you know, the little things, right? That make the job worthwhile. Uh, they ultimately become unmotivated to do anything extra. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's amazing how it, how it crumbles. It's like there, I read a about a study where they had people build something with Lego blocks. And uh, at the, after they finished building... The, the researcher came and just like sort of destroyed it and then just put it there. And they wanted to see if people would rebuild or build something new. And uh, it actually very quickly destroyed the intrinsic motivation to build these things. Interesting. Yeah. I hope I'm remembering that right. But it, uh, was, yeah. it, it was, it was, I was like, wow well, yep, I've seen this in work. I've seen yeah. this in work. Someone More fact times. check us please. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But th- that's
1: fascinating to me because I don't know if other data professions necessarily face that same issue Hmm. so you have data engineers if you're building pipelines you're making queries whatever it might be the end result of that is you have a new table Mm -hmm. you have a new Mm. essentially pipeline that Mm -hmm. is probably going to be used at least by someone Mm -hmm. if you have even uh you know like a machine learning engineer they're creating an api endpoint they're creating Mm -hmm. some form of infrastructure that's used and resilient you have a software engineer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If you have like a, a you know like a web developer, you have oh we made this new button. Maybe it's not the most impressive button or it's not meaningful to me, but I see it on the website. We, mm-hmm. we made we made this and we implemented it. Mm-hmm. I would imagine data scientists, data analysts, probably have one of the higher percentage, one of the higher percentages of work that's done.
0: And just sort of thrown out. Yep. Or, mm-hmm. or and and yeah. That, Why do you think so many people are leaving data science to do data engineering? Yeah. It's like a trend, right? It's not just because of the of it's not because of salaries or just because of salaries. It's not just because the hype cycle is ending and now data engineering. It's more. I think that uh, people get into it and because of the lack of infrastructure, they find it annoying and then they end up moving to that side of the value chain, you know, like the data engineering side. So then. But then, ultimately, for example, I could have done that. You know, I know what it feels like to to build awesome little apps and tools and stuff, and and and, and the feeling that you get when people use it—it's very nice, right? It's and and research sometimes doesn't get that, but I still get off more on the research. Yeah. When you find something really interesting, you're like, "Wow, that really performing," or "Wow, that little change." Or, yeah, now, for me, it's like the thrill of discovery. So, it's either the thrill of your stuff being used. All the other engineering, or the thrill of the discovery of the thing itself—that's—it it feels like you're discovering something new about the universe. I don't know, almost like a little, like a little chunk of the universe. And I think uh, those people, if they have successful careers and they like what they're doing, they—that those are the ones who stay in data science.
1: Yeah, yeah. that makes
0: sense. I, I also think
1: data scientists are generally problem solvers. We want mm. answers. We want efficiency. We want mm-hmm. an output. And one of the reasons why many data scientists go to data engineering is because they see all of the problems upstream of what they're doing, Mm -hmm. or, yeah, upstream of what they're doing, and they say, hey, I just want to fix this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go over here because that's where all the problems are. I can't do, I can't solve my problems without this prerequisite problem being solved. And maybe that's a good thing because I think data quality and infrastructure comes before analysis, Mm -hmm. but it's also somewhat of an unfortunate thing that Mm -hmm. most well, so many companies have so many things wrong with their data infrastructure. I'd like to take a quick second to thank one of our sponsors, PathRise. Job hunting can be daunting, particularly in today's unpredictable world. PathRise matches you with a dedicated mentor in your field, to provide tailored support throughout your job search journey. From optimizing your resume and application process to mastering your interview skills, their expert guidance prepares you to secure your dream job and to negotiate a competitive salary. The cherry on top is that you don't pay until you secure that high-paying job that you've been aiming for. Don't hesitate. Visit pathrise.com kenji to get matched with an expert mentor today. This episode of Kanzaris Neighbors is brought to you by HP. HP's high-compute, workstation-grade line of products and solutions. Z is specifically made for high-performance data science solutions, and I personally use the ZBook Studio and the Z8 workstation. I really love that the Z workstations can come standard with Linux or WSL2, and they can be configured with the Data Science Software Stack Manager. With the Software Stack Manager, you can get right to the work of doing data science on day one without the overhead of having to completely reconfigure your new machine. Now back to our show.
0: And I, and I think um, the people who end up finding a lot of satisfaction in engineering and don't go back to data science, particularly, or ML research when, say, the infrastructure is better if they stick around long enough, which is not usually the case. Uh, I think they don't, they end up, I think it's the people who are really comfortable with ambiguity that stick around in, in data or um, maybe, maybe they have more of a math background. I'm actually not sure about that. Uh, I feel like people of all sorts of backgrounds go between the two. It's really more of a mental a mental perspective, you know, just to yeah. comfort with, oh, if I do this and uh, it doesn't work, you know, does it does it feel like I'm useless or something. Yeah. And of course
1: there's no right or wrong in that. No right or right? wrong, it's yeah. just personal preference. And mm-hmm. you know, I have a lot of really good friends that they say, "Hey, data engineering, there's more certainty in that." That's mm-hmm. more exciting for me. Yeah, I exactly. I I would argue I'm, I'm also looking for more certainty in things these days. I still prefer the data science because I find a lot of the engineering a bit more repetitive, Mm -hmm. but it, I mean, it doesn't have to be, I'm just working with a lot of the same data all the time. So it doesn't necessarily make sense for me to, it's not, there isn't novelty in the engineering Mm. that I do comparatively. Oh, I see. Yeah. So let's change gears a little bit. I'm interested. Mm. You, you quit, your, your job. Mm. And then what are you doing now? Well, you know, what does someone who's pretty far along in their career do when they take a break? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, I'm starting something new. Uh, it's basically, I thought back on all the challenges I faced, especially in my last role, very very specifically. And I wondered what I could have had at the time that might have prevented or helped me to foresee and solve some of those challenges that I faced and I thought about it a little more meta. So, for example, there was information I didn't have or perspectives and knowledge I didn't have about, uh, you know, maybe tactics on how to define ROI or how to manage a project X way or Y way, right? And I thought, well, maybe if I had known that. But I didn't think that actually that was a good solution because at the time, uh, no one was giving me negative feedback on what I was doing. And in fact, I even after when stuff would go wrong, I would very rarely get negative feedback. They were just like, oh, you're doing great, you're smart, Uh, this is great work, you know, your team's very low drama (laughs) compared to other projects, you know, like it's not a quagmire. So, what could I have done better? Uh, And I realized I was, what I needed was uh, someone to help point out my blind spots. Now, I think there are very few ways you can do that. You can get a coach, Uh, you can have a really good mentor in a company who will find your blind spots and raise you up. And even just one person like that is worth it's worth your whole career. Like you got one of that, that's it's like, that's enough. If they are observant and you meet with them regularly, but it's also kind of luck-based, very luck-based, right? So what I'm doing is I'm creating a, basically a mastermind group for data science leaders and uh, senior technical contributors, like data science and related data roles um, to basically meet regularly um, and talk about their biggest challenges with each other. And uh, from the content of those groups, I would create courses. I think that are unique because um, they're really getting at the big challenges that people face. Uh, yeah, it's so that's what I've been. That's what I've been focused on in the immediate weeks after I quit. I ended up doing a lot of like fixing up shit around the house, if <laughs> I'd been putting off for years. Like I bought a wine rack and I hadn't put it together, and uh, after so for at least a year. And so, I actually put it together one afternoon and it was such a satisfying feeling. I actually forgot what it felt like to do work where uh, you get a feedback from like every every millisecond, like you hit the the mallet or the hammer and you're like, wow, I can feel it and it goes in. It's so satisfying to complete physical physical things like that if it's not too challenging, right? And so, it made me actually reflect, uh, how can we create this kind of situation doing the kind of work that data scientists do? Uh, in companies how can we create those clear goals and immediate feedback that you know stimulate the flow state that i've been experiencing a lot in the last couple of weeks yeah mm-hmm. i mean think a lot
1: of people get into data science because there is at least for me there's some of that flow state mm-hmm. if you're i don't really use them that much but a jupiter notebook and you yeah. run the cell and you're like oh the output's good and then you run yep. another cell mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, I wonder if I made this tweak. And then you you change some parameters, and you're like, oh, okay, great. Or mm-hmm. you 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 know, you're like, okay, well, I want to add these to the grid search. And oh, like the range on this parameter wasn't as good as I thought it was. Mm-hmm. You're like, maybe if we expand it, I might get better results. And you're just like waiting, you're anticipating, and you get the yep. reward hit. Um, it's fun. That's the that's the fun part. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it's interesting because you do less of that. When you manage, you do less Mm -hmm. than that when you're leading teams. And I could see some people who fall in love with that process and then go into leadership or do whatever because they're making more money, Mm -hmm. almost fall out of love with a career because the skill set and the things you focus on are so, so different. And I'm really fortunate because I get to still code. I get to do a lot of this stuff in my normal job, even though I lead a team. But I think a lot of people, they're like, well is it good for my career or is it
0: good for mm. what I'm interested in? And they have to make this internal battle.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. I,
0: inter- I interviewed someone, they accepted an offer and then a week later they were negged. And um, I, I could have gotten mad, but what I actually I, I just messaged them directly. No HR. And, uh, I was like, Hey, uh, I was curious to, if you want to chat, I, I was just curious what happened. He, he was, he was open to it. And we talked, and it turns out that his company had taken a week, big companies slow, uh, to one up our offer by promoting him to basically be a leader, small team. They were going to create some open positions for him in the month or two or something like that. So he, yeah, basically got the counter offer. And I was hiring a senior IC, and he said, "You know what? The work I'm going to do here is is going to be more boring than what uh, I would have been doing with you, probably." Uh, but this is a good move for my career. So, I literally saw it play out, yeah. what you just described. Yeah. It's 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 kind of funny that I feel like um, leaders, data science leaders, anyone who gets promoted to management uh, in technical roles, they get almost no training on how to actually lead people. Leading people, like the psychology and, and, and dynamics and, and whatever, even cross-cultural stuff, it's like really fascinating to me. Like studying how to lead and manage is its own... It's its own reward. So I find that process intrinsically rewarding. Um, but I feel like if you like data science and, and the process, the the hands-on coding, it's kind of random. It feels almost like a crapshoot whether or not you'll actually also like the people side. Mm-hmm. Uh, there might be certain aspects. I've heard of people enjoying uh, the delegation aspect, as in focusing more on thinking about how, to, on what to do rather than exactly how to do it. Finding the how slightly annoying to like, get tangled kind of tangled and messed up with so then if you're like okay this is what's important you then give it to someone else they can figure it out that could be rewarding for people Um, but generally i think in leadership one of the main challenges to feeling happy and enjoying it is that the conditions for the flow state don't exist to the same extent Um, you have you can have clear goals but generally they're less clear than when you were in ic make the model better write this code, do this package, you know, okay, prod, de- deploy, whatever. Uh, when you're a leader, it's like, well, what should we be working on? How do I know I'm doing it well? No one knows the answers to these these questions. You have to sort of define them jointly with everyone else. And that's the tough part. So, the goals are less clear. The feedback is less immediate, as you said, because you can write code, you get results, you keep going. That creates immediate feedback and can lead you into the flow state as you're exploring a problem. With the stuff you do in leadership, the feedback loop can be weeks it can be months sometimes it's years you know that tends to apply more if you're running your own business or c-level or something like that but the things the changes you do you don't know if they're going to work or not and uh, there's no there's not necessarily the perfect data to go on because the situation always changes so there's less immediate feedback which also can pull you out of flow um sometimes the work can feel less meaningful because i think sometimes data scientists are drawn to it because it feels like uh you're wrangling a chaotic world with mathematics. You know? Mm-hmm. You're know, you bringing order to chaos. But when you're in leadership, often you're exposed to more chaos and you're exposed to chaos that you cannot control. And uh, I, f- I think deep down, a lot of data science leaders who are promoted from technical rather than being a leader of something else and then moving over or whatever, which I've seen a lot and it doesn't work very well. Those ones who get promoted from IC to manager, I find that they grapple with these sorts of things deep down.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I also find, especially when I, you know, when I was working in larger companies and looking at office politics and those types mm-hmm. of things, mm-hmm. I think data people that enraged me. <laughs> yeah. It's that hey, we're supposed to be working as efficiently as possible. Mm-hmm. We want the best outcomes for our organization. Why well, do I have to talk to this guy and this guy and mm-hmm. eat lunch with this person and do a favor for this person mm-hmm. just to do what's best for this company in general? To me, there's so many little things like that that I cannot stand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I work for a very small company now or that happens a lot less because I'm mm-hmm. just be like, hey, like, <laughs> Fix we're it. doing this. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, (laughs) Uh, but it's, it's kind of disappointing Mm. in in my mind that that is such a big part of these and maybe Mm. some of the larger companies, uh, that are very tech focused, cut that out a little bit better. I would argue they
0: probably do just because they have very specific infrastructure for that. Mm. Mm, Okay. From, I see, I see that side you're getting at, but from what I've heard, uh, a lot of a lot of people in big tech face just as many politics yeah. mm-hmm. as they do because uh, a lot of incentives are built to slow down change, you know. Uh, or there's a lot of risk management, which is the word for uh, stopping you from having fun. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well,
1: <I> mean, <laughs> it's, it's funny though. You look at risk management now with... Mm. It's risk management when it's convenient for them. Yeah, Because exactly. look at the advancements in AI. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at, you know, Google releasing Bard um, with... ChatGPT, GPT four, GPT five training. Mm-hmm. It seems like these companies are doing things that are somewhat risky. Correct. I, I, I like. I personally think the Bard release was they were not ready to release mm. a lot of these things, mm-hmm. and they're making these decisions mm. that, again, are risky.
0: But they have these procedures. For employees that are... When it's convenient. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's a great point. I never thought of it that way. That's very... uh, What's the word? Uh, It's a dark view, but I like it. (laughs) Yeah, well... I
1: I mean, I'm more and more jaded as as time goes with profit motivation and these types of things. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. We've talked a little bit offline. I talk with a lot of people that I think Mm -hmm. a lot of the AI stuff, it seems like we're moving unbelievably fast now
2: mm-hmm.
1: and this is obviously a review for you but you know when Alan Turing made the Turing test mm-hmm. I think he he assumed that we would solve it in a pretty short period of time like 10 mm-hmm. 20 years and we went we took a lot longer for a system to essentially like not beat but but uh, you know well I guess beat the Turing test
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then since the and to that point every projection we made about AI was way an overestimate. We're, mm-hmm. we're gonna solve this quick. This is gonna happen. You mm-hmm. know, the, the first AI meeting, they were like, we'll do it over, you know, like a couple days and we'll figure this AI thing out. <laughs> and I forgot mm-hmm. who the researchers were. You, you have a lot better mind for, for those types of things. But mm-hmm. throughout all of history until now, we've way overestimated our capability to solve artificial intelligence and to create it. Mm. And then now it's completely flipped and we're way underestimating the capabilities of it. And to me, whenever you have a shift from massive overestimation to underestimation in a very short period of time, Mm. that means decisions around a technology, especially capitalistic decisions around a technology, are very concerning. Because... Mm. Humans
0: cannot process things that move at that speed. Mm. And uh, I don't know what the implications are. As the book Stolen Focus makes a point of, if you only, by uh, Johan Hari, I think, yeah. um, If you're used to skimming information, uh, then you'll view view all the information in the world as being essentially just what matters is the surface. Uh, But in order to make really deep and interesting insights, you have to focus on one thing for long periods of time. If you treat the AI news now like every other news cycle where you're just skimming between headlines and uh, not going in depth to try to understand the fundamentals of what's happening, I think uh, you're at risk of also making very poor decisions that could have very bad long-term implications. Yeah, I would agree. Do you think more companies
1: than not are skimming or taking deep dives? Because I would imagine... Every large company I can think of is trying to integrate AI really
0: aggressively right now. Mm-hmm. Well, it depends. I feel like for uh, I think that there, I think that it's fine when there's a human in the loop uh, who can ultimately check it, and also if the companies creating the AI systems have feedback loops with the users uh, and with society because it's that big now uh, about problems, you know. Citing facts, ethic, ethical decisions, that sort of thing. Um, you know, like there's, you always see viral content on, uh, you know, ChatGPT is is sexist or racist. Look at, you know, this little test I ran with, where we flipped the gender references and the prone, you know, or something, and ChatGPT still assumed that the doctor was male and the nurse was female or something like that. And you're like, yeah, you can see that, but ultimately, if you have a feedback loop where you see that and then you can improve upon it, you know, with uh, different decisions in, in architecture or, I suppose, band-aids on top of current systems. Then uh, then it's not so bad. Ultimately, I think uh, the system is self-correcting. Um, I, th- I, w- I want to hear a counterpoint, though. <laughs> so, I would argue mm. that there are things
1: that are so useful mm-hmm. that utility trumps the ethical yes. border we have around Yeah, there. definitely. You, you look at probably most cell phones. Mm-hmm. There's some pieces in there where there's just human rights violations that are mm-hmm. being done in order to get those parts. And we just don't think about it because mm. we love our phones so much and the technology is so useful to us. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that these models to a point could be biased enough or dangerous enough or or you know or wrong enough. But they're still useful enough that we sort of sweep those other things under the rug. And, you know, like, for example, I, you know, I, for, for my use case, I'm like, oh, this helps me so much with my work and my coding. Like, if it's wrong about a social issue or it gives a bad take or there's potentially dangerous stuff that could come out of it, um, as, you know, even if it's some of my privacy, I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, well, it's probably worth it to me because... Mm-hmm individually I get so much benefit from it and that to me yes. is is scary is that we're all looking out for what's best for us locally mm-hmm. our individual benefit from the product that that far outweighs the global danger that we fear that mm-hmm. we feel which is probably big and, and threatening for a lot of us that's true and I
0: don't know how you reconcile those things mm. Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, the answer to, to, to reconciling. I think, uh, I don't even know if humans are necessarily the best at figuring out what's lo- best for them locally. Probably Maybe not. best for them locally in space and time. You know, I think we do things that are locally good and then uh, bad in with respect to the long term, right? Like we'll yeah. make short term decisions. And I feel like with, with AI it could be beneficial in the short term is it net beneficial in the long term? Mm, probably, I would say probably. It could be that I'm optimistic, but there's not really data to go on. I mean, you could look at how technology has advanced through history, and you could say that uh, well, every you know, if say military technology advances and it makes it easier to kill people, right? Um, was it a net good or net bad? Well, you could look at the correlation of, of rising wealth total wealth and GDP in the world and the rising pace of technology and stuff. And you're like, well, maybe that happened despite the weapons or maybe it happened because the weapons, because it gave democracies, you know, more or less like the U.S., uh, the power to sort of enforce uh, a kind of uh, free markets in the world, which led to more trade. And, you know, for example, the huge reduction in poverty in China over the last 40 years since they liberalized their economy. And countries like Vietnam, which did it just a little bit later in the 80s, you know, those are like huge changes and huge benefits to people, uh, partly, ultimately comes back to the threat of physical force if you don't play by those rules of trade, right, mm. uh, from mostly the U.S. It's, it's, You know, there are other countries too, but mostly the U.S. So, was it good or bad? Uh, well, it what it did is extend power. And ultimately, the good or bad partly depends on your perspective, how you measure it. Um, I think AI will be the same, like any other technology. It will extend our powers. Um, in a sense, if you think of it like a like a video game, um, when weapons advance, it becomes you become more like a glass cannon. Uh, meaning that people don't become more durable. The weapons just get better, and so people will become easier to kill. And that's very compared to like the days of swords and armor and stuff, where you actually could be mostly impregnable to, to damage, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel like um, you, you don't enhance our, our um, ability to resist damage, you just enhance the power to do things. So you'll get like social media when that arose, and, and they put uh, behavioral conditioning into the reward systems. That made us more and more addicted to it, and we just sort of fell into it as a society. Now we're all like glued to our phones all the time. Um, but it enabled so many good things, yeah. you know, democratic uprisings, movements, coordination, you know, all sorts of all sorts of things. I think good and bad is a, is a perspective thing. I think the real challenge is when um, is if you think something is good when uh, when the number of people in the world who agree with you start to shrink. If most people think that racist AI is bad, which they do, I'm pretty sure, uh, then there will be people who will go into it to remove those things from the system, people studying ethical AI. So ultimately, I think unless uh, the climate destroys us, climate change, then um, I think that it will ultimately be a net benefit, just like every other technology in the past.
1: Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. it depends who we're talking about, Mm -hmm. but I mean, I think a lot of people would also argue that social media is going to be a net benefit.
2: Hmm.
1: Because it's all about the time horizon we look at it mm-hmm. into. I mean, you look at you know, I look at seven year olds who are completely addicted to the phone already. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they whether it's Instagram, whether it's any of these platforms, and we don't know the downstream effects. And yeah, you know, that's kind of what you're saying as well, is like mm-hmm. the it is open ended to whether these things have a net benefit. And what is a net benefit? Net benefit to yeah. humans? Yeah. Net benefits to, I mean, I think AI has a massive positive net benefit to AI in the future. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, it's only exactly. it better. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, all what, what that all really means is that I, I know for a fact, I think the quality of human life and the way we live our lives day to day will change dramatically mm-hmm. over the next probably five years as a result of AI. I think so. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I also personally think I have to be prepared for more downside solutions or more downside risk mm-hmm. because there is so much possible variance. Right? If it was like a fairly linear path and we said, "Okay, it's it's going to be kind of average." I don't feel like I'd have to plan as much for downside risk as I do if there's this massive,
0: massive possible deviation Mm. of what could happen.
2: Mm. That's
0: a good point. I mean, there are natural experiments in the world where there are giant rapid shifts uh, towards the negative. War is probably the most common example where there was no war and then there was war. And you went from being able to go to the store to buy food to being a refugee, Mm. right? Uh, There's, you know, Kosovo, Serbia 20-ish years ago. Uh, you know, there's Ukraine, Russia now. That's, um, so you could look at those as case studies. What could they have, could someone, you know, in, in Ukraine have, have uh, gone off the grid and, you know, had enough food storage for several years well, in an underground bunker to survive the war? Maybe. Uh, the cost, though, to, that, to their life before the war might have been too much, yeah. you know? And the uncertainty of whether or not that would happen perhaps too great. Right, so then do you abstract that away from individuals, and then the government should have, uh, you know, had these other preparations. But if you're ultimately being attacked, then how? What do you do about it? You know, I I have very little faith (laughs) in the government to handle a situation. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. I I mean,
1: realistically, Mm -hmm. I mean, we we just want. I mean, COVID is still around, but Mm -hmm. we we essentially went through this pandemic, Mm -hmm. and it was handled absolutely terribly by almost every government out there. Mm -hmm. Um, If That happened again. Right now, Mm. we'd be even less equipped to handle it. Mm. Perhaps I mean, from if you look at at least the United States, Mm. right? I mean, you look at the United States; it's even more divided about if people would take a vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it could be a completely different disease, but there's so much of this like bifurcation sentiment that it'd Mm. be even worse than it was before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, even in this scenario that we just went through,
0: I don't think we're apt to handle it again. I def, I agree. We're not apt to handle it. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to, for me, it's hard to say whether it'd be worse or better. Yeah. That's yeah. also, it's It's the mm-hmm. same argument. We've, oh, not argument. It's the same conversation we've been having. It's, yes. It's like, oh yeah. Weird? But, but, mm-hmm. but it,
1: again, it would be different and there would be a lot of possible upside and downside. And I think mm-hmm. the way I'm viewing the world is before when I was growing up, it seemed like there was very little, I don't know if you remember Bollinger Bands from, mm-hmm. um, from finance. So mm-hmm. like a Bollinger Band is essentially two standard deviations or one standard deviation, um, of difference from like the a stock trend. Mm-hmm. Um, and it felt like the standard deviations on what was possible were pretty tight. It was like, okay, mm-hmm. the world is heading in this direction. I'll do X, Y, Z and whatever it might be. And with COVID and then with, um, with the advancements in AI, you know, we talked about climate change. We talked about a lot of things. Mm. I feel like those standard deviations have gone absolutely haywire. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's like a mostly quantitative view. And yeah, in, yeah. And respe- like out of respect for people, what went th- what they went through historically. Like we we haven't really had to deal with like major wars. I mean, there's mm-hmm. Ukraine, Russia, but. Um, I would imagine that was a massive change of pace. And it yeah. shaped consumer consumer behavior. I mean, I look at my mom who went through some of the Great Depression, like just mm. the very tail end of it, her, her parents did. Mm-hmm. Um, I see how her like consumer behavior is very different. Mm-hmm. Individual behavior is very different. I, I wonder how that is going to shape the things that we're going through is going to shape how mm. we are as adults or how we raise our kids or some of those types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm not making a... A haywire case. I'm not going to put on a tinfoil hat yet, <laughs> but it, it, mm. it, it has made me think a lot. From a fairly analytical perspective,
0: how do you a- approach a future that is more uncertain than it was before? Hmm. Well, that ultimately comes back to your definition of a life well-lived. Yeah, is the purpose of life to experience as least as little pain as possible? If it is, then it maybe it makes sense to put a lot of resources into constraining your downside. And of course, it's easy for me to say that growing up in the U.S., right? You know, it's like yeah, everyone's like, screw you, man! I have this and that, and these problems. And my country was like this. I mean, my my family came from Pakistan, and so they're they've never they've only once transferred power peacefully from one democratically elected president to the next. The There's an enormous amount of child poverty is all, you know, there were the floods last year that buried a third of the country in water or something. That's crazy. So, they're like, yes, I'd like some stability, you know. (laughs) So, I'm like sitting here and like, in being interviewed, like, yeah, you know, stability overrated. But I think uh, ultimately, like, you, you can, there is the, there is stability and if you have a very stable situation, there will still be problems. And if you have a very unstable situation, there will still be problems. And I think if you were to define, if you were to at least have a discussion about what actually the kind of life you want to give, you know, to your to the people, say, of a nation or something like that, that could ultimately lead to uh, different conclusions about what to do. Is the is the purpose to give you maximal freedom of choice? Uh, then you get consumerist, you get the U.S. approach, right? Is it to have maximal safety from downside, then maybe we'd have a stronger safety net. Is it to encourage, you know, bold, breath, you know, breathtaking explorations that you might do what the Polynesians did, you know, where there were strong social incentives to basically strike out on your own and find new islands in Polynesia, right? So, I mean, different societies uh, have different definitions of what uh, a good life is. You know, the ancient Greeks talked about heroism, and, you know, or the, the Vikings and Valhalla, Right? So, they might look at our lives and think that they're not the way that the things that we value are not the things that they value. Right? There's a, there's a, a cultural side to this too, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. No, what, what is your version of a life well lived? Hmm. I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, uh, I think there's something about feeling meaning and purpose. Uh, it's a life where you do something that you find valuable. And I think a life uh, where you're able to affect the world in some way like that, even if it's just the world of your family and friends and local community. So, I feel like having a purpose and defining and finding your own purpose is probably the closest answer I could come to and then doing what it takes to fulfill that. Yeah. How far are you from finding your purpose? Hmm. I don't know if I have a specific purpose yet. But definitely, you can feel locally purposeful. <laughs> yeah. You know, if goals can feel worthy and you can muster all your energy towards achieving it. Uh, something, you know, and then we can choose our own purposes, our own goals. Something that, uh, well, AI, I guess, I guess auto GPT can, can do that. But uh, not at the same level that we can. I, when an AI gets, ends up coming up with goals that contradict each other, and ends up developing bad habits and behaviors that it wants to escape, but cannot like humans do like addiction or something. Then I'll be like, wow, we really come up with a human intelligence there. Right. So like, like what weird ass collection of optimizations and goals do, are we programmed with in our brains that make us do all this crazy shit? Yeah. Well, I mean,
1: we, we've talked about this mm-hmm. offline a little bit is that at least right now, and to the best of my knowledge, AI or models can effectively only be trained with one objective function. Like you can mm-hmm. like unsupervised learning, train something mm-hmm. to recognize patterns or whatever it might be. But if you're trying to do some form of supervised learning, and I guess ChatGPT is semi-supervised mm-hmm. because they have the human, sort of human loop. loop, human loop um, it's really only possible to to create like a a singular goal. And humans, as you just described, have these, Conflicting goals. Yes. Right? Like, I might want freedom, goals. but I also might want a girlfriend super bad or something like that. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. man, we like those two things are actually like oppositional in some sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think that there's, I don't know if that's an evolutionary thing, if that has benefited us in some way mm-hmm. or if that's detracted from our potential. But I think mm-hmm. that the power of humans is that we're all. Kind of random. Yeah. I'll have our individual. And messy. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, messy and But we've, you know, humans just fall and they fall forward. Mm-hmm. Um, or mm-hmm. historically. We'll see if we're, we fall into, idi- what is it, idiocracy? Idiocracy? Uh, you know, I don't know if we're going <laughs> It's a to great movie. Oh, was a really good movie. Um, I, I learned a, a, about, I was probably watching Instagram or something, and all the characters in the movie, they, they were crocs.
0: in idiocracy
1: yeah if you look in that's i was a kid
0: and i didn't probably even know what a croc was Well, so
1: the the dress designer like the the apparel designer for the movie found them and they're like oh good like you know these are super cheap we can buy them in bulk (laughs) and the one of the other people was like okay well what if what if they become popular and the designer was like these are so ugly. How could they ever? <laughs> and now
0: I probably wear Crocs all the time. Mm-hmm. So that's hilarious. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, we watering our plants with Gatorade. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's got electrolytes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. Well, those are all the topics I wanted to cover. Yeah, any any
1: other thoughts? Any other wisdom? Any other mm. any
0: recipes people should try? <gasps> recipes. Well, uh, cooking is awesome. I. I think you're one of the few friends I have who really likes to cook. Um, yeah, recently I've been getting into uh, historical recipes, so I got a, I purchased a book. It's a translation, a transcreation is what she calls it, because she converts the units from historical units. That, you're like, what, what does this mean to modern kilograms and teaspoons and stuff? Uh, <laughs> but it's it's not six mouthfuls of, of Christ, <laughs> six whatever's of this or that. Yeah. At least this thing had measurements, because in the old days, like no one put measurements in their recipes. It'd be like throw the leeks and the stock in the pot and cook as I told you. And you're like, well, that doesn't mean tell me anything. Yeah, but it's a it's a translation of uh, uh, this a cookbook from the time of the Mughals in India from the time of Shah Jahan, so probably like 450 to 500 years old. I cooked a recipe for it for Eid for my family recently, and it was really popular. Uh, This is is very fancy where you you cook lamb with a little bit of spices like minced lamb and then you stuff it in a chicken and then you create a bed of cinnamon in a pot, you pour ghee around it and you like cover the chicken with like yogurt and saffron and then you steam it. And it said steam for four hours and that was way too long because I guess chickens back then were made of iron. But uh, <laughs> so it was steaming for one hour is probably enough and you open it it's, t- it's like tastes like God. It's amazing. Oh, really yeah. Good. So, I was, I was very curious because my family says they, they make Mughalai style cooking, like the royal Muslim court, you know, back then. And I was curious, I guess it's in a way a, data, a data-driven way like, do we actually? So, I wanted to see what real recipes from the time look like. And compare it to my family style, and I found generally that our stuff is pretty close. Our stuff's a little—it's a little spicier today, and there's more ingredients. But uh, and the, some of our stuff is a little simplified from like the crazy number of steps that they would do back then. Yeah, well, yeah. we we have air fryers, Insta Yeah, we have more tools as yeah. well. But then, at, but what's interesting is that you look at—they use a lot of technique. They use techniques that we don't use anymore. They have categories of food that we don't have anymore in in modern Indian Pakistani cooking, at least that I'm aware of. Uh, So, some of these things sort of like just kind of died out. Uh, And there are different concepts. And when you cook a lot, maybe, maybe you relate. If you want to come up with recipes or you want to come up with interesting fusions of different cuisines you know, um, then what you have to do is analytically, bre- the way I do it is I analytically break down the purpose of different ingredients and then I can mix and match them like, oh, soy sauce and fish sauce. They're both umami rich, like liquids that I can use to add a savory flavor or tomatoes and Parmesan cheese do something similar, but tomatoes have acid, you know, you break down the analytical categories and then you can go, whoop, whoop, whoop. have you, you read the... Mess it with it. the book, <laughs> salt, fat, acid, heat? Yes. So, I mean, that's a great great framework is that,
1: Mm -hmm. okay, basically every good food has some element of all four of these things. Mm -hmm. So, it has to have the right amount of salt, it has to have some uh, form of acid, Mm -hmm. it has to have some fat Mm -hmm. content, and then there's a bunch of different ways that you cook it to bring out the best in the combination that you've created. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's a very data-driven approach. I I Mm love the book. I absolutely hated the Netflix show. Oh, yeah? Uh, I yeah. thought it was good. I yeah. didn't mind. I didn't mind the Netflix show. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't my favorite. But, um,
0: The the mm. book was a lot more scientific. It felt more scientific than, sure. than than the show did for me. Mm. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, that book changed the way I looked at cooking and it, it gave me... I'd always wanted to be analytical about it. For example, my family, you know, they make their own garam masala. It means warm spices. It, it's just like the classic, like, spice collection used in, we'll see, I guess, North Indian cooking and Pakistani cooking and Every family does it differently. And so, you know, you get the recipes handed down and it's, it's like nine spices. I'm like, what? Why these nine and why in these ratios? And what was the point? And uh, it's only when you go into each spice individually and you you like smell them, you taste them, you, you look at them and you think, what does this relate to? So, almost like I almost think of cooking knowledge or knowledge of anything as like a graph, you know. For example, um, you know, cardamom is like kind of sweet but also spicy and mm-hmm. Uh, so therefore, it can go with these things, but not with these other things. So maybe you like mellow out with milk, and then you get you know cardamom flavored ice creams and stuff, and you're like, wow, why does this work so well? Cinnamon is similar; it's like sweet and kind of spicy. Uh, yeah, coriander seed, on the other hand, smells like lemon zest to yeah. me. Well, you know what you would love? <laughs> mm. the, I don't. You haven't gotten into bread making at all, I assume. I know, uh, like, my wife, or, di- my wife did, uh, but it's not like we do it very often.
1: So I read yeah. another book called Flower, water, salt, yeast, and he talks <laughs> nice. a lot of, it's all about bread, mm-hmm. but bread, you have another factor, which is time and temper, well, two other factors, time and temperature. Mm-hmm. So yeast is a living thing. Yes. And in order to get the correct texture and a lot of these things out of the bread, you have to, it's it's literally a function of time and the temperature in the room mm-hmm. to get these to the correct proofing point. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. it's a very, very, a lot of people look at it as an artistic task. I look at it as a very scientific task. Like, I can mm. literally, if I did it's enough experiments, slancy. plot uh, the optimal time I would need based on the temperature in the room and the humidity and some mm. of these other things. and so that to me is... Is fun, but I, I also cooking to me is very much an art mm-hmm. because I'm so very scientific about everything else that I do mm-hmm. that it's a nice outlet to be able to exercise. That. And honestly, I love pretty much everything that is both truly an art and a science, including yeah. data science. Right? Yeah, like yeah. There's a lot of artistry and the storytelling and stuff around there's,
0: that. There's a lot. You there's a lot that they share in common. You know, uh, if you want to quickly, if you want to quickly learn new concepts in data science, then it's faster if you connect it to things you already know, yeah. you know, almost in a graphical way. Like, oh, I know this, and then the flaws of this technique are that. So therefore, they made this innovation, which does this thing differently, and therefore, you know, whatever. And then if you do that, you'll you'll have this sort of graph in your head about how everything's connected together, and then you can make substitutions, you know, or find uh, the parallels between different techniques, you know, like uh, any any type of Bayesian optimization that's done in a sort of a a, a loop like a stepwise fashion you know and you and you might relate it to something like gradient descent you like well these, these, these techniques are not not that different you know yeah um but yeah that's like that's the fun part so it's like mixing and matching and cooking and mixing and matching in in uh in data science and concepts and then it lets you feel like you're an artist even when you're doing something really sciencey and supposedly quite objective yeah i think mm-hmm. that might that might be a discovery for me today is that I
1: really love things that have both of those elements. I mean, everything that I really enjoy doing right now, podcasting, YouTube, mm-hmm. jujitsu, cooking, yep. all, all of those things have probably equal ratio. Oh, and obviously mm-hmm. data science of yep. the art and the science. Um, and may, maybe you could make an, argue that, an argument that everything has those equal elements, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I, I, I would imagine that you know I, I never really
0: fancied myself much of an artist but maybe maybe mm. i am more than i think yep i you probably are yeah the best parts of data science are when you're using scientific techniques but combining them in an artful manner yeah. and the art is often in the execution the art is uh how do i do it in this amount of time how do i do it in a way that's explainable yeah that's like the stuff that there's not necessarily a defined answer you know even you know if you choose among uh Uh, 60 time series cross-validation procedures, you know, you might say, oh, well, train test split, obviously. It's like facts. That's how you do it. You can't have leakage of data, you know, when fitting a model and then assessing its performance. Uh, But then if you get into time series, you realize that there's many different ways to not have leakage and which one tends to generalize the best. There was a, one of my favorite papers uh, went into this topic and they, the answer was they had to empirically test, you know, like having a train a gap period and then test making the gap larger and shorter, yeah. uh, randomizing having train tests next to each other, but randomizing the where it happens, like that split in time, and all sorts of things, you know. And they and they tried and they used a bunch of data sets and like which one works the best, and I implemented and then I had to basically hand implement the the procedure that they said generalized the best, you know, did that at my in my last job. It was uh, that was a lot of fun, so I always thought like. There is an art to it, too. There's an art even to implementing the science, you know. Yes. There's an art to running good experiments. You know, the experiment, yeah, you can assess it in a scientific way, but to come up with the experiment, there, there's an art to that. Yeah.
1: yeah. Amazing. Well, I think that's mm. a good thing to end on. Where can people learn more about you? Where can people, uh, you know,
0: potentially reach out to you if uh, if they're interested in learning more? Mm. Well, uh, my LinkedIn profile is my, my main way. So, Rashad, a Becker. Yeah. I haven't put up my site yet or or documents or anything. I got to get on that. Okay. I will link (laughs) everything that Rashad has Mm -hmm. in the description below. Thank
1: you so much again for the time.
0: Yeah. This was amazing. It's awesome chatting.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors. Many of you have been asking about how you can support the show, and we're extremely grateful for all the engagement so far. The best way that you can show your support is to subscribe to both the Ken's Nearest Neighbors and the Ken's Nearest Neighbors Clips YouTube channels. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Music, giving us a rating and sharing any of the episodes with someone that you believe might find the content useful is also greatly appreciated. The Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast is hosted by me, Kenji, produced by Bobby Hicks, and is edited by Mario Paul and Tony Pelleriti.